You're listening to the Renew Life Church podcast. We hope this message inspires you and challenges you to become a true disciple of Jesus. To find out more about us, go to renewlifechurch.com. We've got an amazing, amazing service in store as we've kind of already partaken in some of it. I don't want to take too much time. Uh, Just really, really honored to have just an incredible guest who has spoken tremendous words and prophesied amazing things into our church. There are things that are happening in our our community as a church that are results of him just listening to the Lord and and being willing to speak them out. Uh, Words that have been given to Pastor Braden and Leanne and their lives and words that have been given to us. And there's people in the room that have received much from his ministry. And so without further ado, would you just join me in honoring and welcoming Prophet Ed Trout to the stage? Come on, lift up a loud shout. Take your seats, family of God. Take your... Right. (laughs) All right. Thank you. Jesus, he's unchanged yesterday, today, and forever. He didn't even have COVID. That's right. He's a good God, and he loves you. You are very important. When we have puppies... Or dogs that are born, when a dog gets pregnant, we know what's coming. If you see a cow, you see what comes out, looks just like the cow. God said, God said, let us make man in our image. Not any animal, nothing on this earth was made in his image. He took his own DNA and he made you. You are his pride and joy the most important creation of all the galaxies and universes. There's nothing that compares to the value you have. Not one of the millions of angelic beings that rebelled and fell from grace were worth saving, not one. Not one, but you were to die for. And he died for you. The devil's done all he can to discredit you in your mind, because of your lack of perhaps word knowledge, make you feel like you're less important. You started learning your values from your parents and from your school teachers and friends. Their opinions of how you dressed and what you looked like began to determine how you thought about yourself because you didn't know how much he valued you and how important you were to him. God so loved you that he gave His only, his only son. Wasn't like he had some to choose from. He gave it all. You were that important. And how many times you fail, make mistakes, do the wrong things, his love just does not change. You are so important to him. It does not matter. It's unimportant what you think you're going through. Life has many challenges. Storms are a part of life. He told us to build our houses on a rock. And one who built it on a rock, and one built it on the sand. Building on the rock was to hear his words and do them. And the storms came to the ones the house built in the sand and the house built in the rock. The storms came. Storms are a part of life. But if you build your house on the rock, The storms won't affect you. You will let them come and go, and they won't devastate your life. So let's do what he tells us. Can you say 
Amen to that. Amen. Thank you. I'm reading from the book of John. It's not the same message as the earlier service. John was a very unique disciple in relation to the other disciples. He's the only one that did not die as a martyr. He was only 18 years old when he met Jesus. And he lived well into his 90s. He wrote the book of Revelation on the Isle of Patmos with the help of his Turkish converts and leaders that he had raised up. He'd also written the book of John that theologians believe wrote in Ephesus. Ephesus was a big hub for Christianity at one time, as was Antioch. And so John was a young man when he met Jesus. And when he wrote his book some years later, it wasn't like the other two Gospels that took a lot of the book of Mark. In fact, more than 200 verses in Mark are identical and carried over to the book of Matthew. And so many of, many of those verses are carried over to Luke too. Mark was the most fundamental and basic book that went out all over the place. Whereas John wrote his book much later in life and was more focused on the message than he was on the historical fact reporting. And his book is very deep and very rich in many ways. Now, Jesus' life consisted of two very important places. He's, he taught and raised up disciples in the Lake of Galilee area all around there. But his other focus he had was in Jerusalem at the temple. The temple was a very large section of the city of Jerusalem. And it was the most beautiful. In fact, it was, there was a slogan in Hebrew, if you've not seen the temple, you've not seen anything beautiful throughout the East. Because it was such a magnificent building that Herod had built, ginormous and big platform he'd raised up. There's seven hills in Jerusalem. Moriah is the second highest. Zion is the highest. So, so Herod decided he was going to build a platform and raise it up called the Temple Mount. I said in the earlier service, Temple Mount would have easily t could house 12 football fields. It's that big. I could describe the whole temple to you and take you down that journey. We haven't got time for that. But in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you look from the sky, it has three valleys and three little hills that run together like peninsulas. And the valleys form and come together at the bottom. And they form what in the second, the 22nd letter of Hebrew, which is known as Shin. And the Shin letter is the letter for God. And he said he'd put his, he'd put his name on the city of Jerusalem. If you look down on the city, you'd see the Shin naturally formed in the actual valleys that are called. The first valley is called the Kidron. You have one side of that valley. You have, of course, the Mount of Olives. And the left-hand side, you have the mountain. That is the most famous Moriah, where the water supply kept flowing. It drew every historical tribe, Canaanites and all the different Philistines that lived there before anybody came. They lived on the, in that area because of the water supply inside the mountain. Hezekiah, when thinking he was being attacked by the Syrians, redirected the water to make sure that it stayed in the walls of the city, that it could not be tapped, polluted in any way. And he redirected it and had his... Uh, masons work underneath, and I hope you all want to go to Israel. 
because this will change your life if you go to Israel. And I'm, t- t- I'm just telling you stuff, so you, it's all in the Word. I, and if you, I would show it to you in Israel if you came with me in December. On the 6th, I'm going, if you want to go to Israel, uh, you can even talk to Pastor Mandy. She will help you. She's going too. She'll tell you how to get on, get on the, that list and come with us. But Hezekiah redirected the water and it, it let it spill down to the very south side of the peninsula into a place called Salom, a big pool, Salom. It's known as what's known as a mikvah. Mikvah is in Hebrew, is a holy place to wash. It must not be polluted so you can sanctify yourself for the temple. Just that you know, on the northern side is another mikvah or water place called Bethesda. And this, this Bethesda, should I say, Bethesda was a bub, just a bubble from the earth, and so you couldn't get into a bubbly pool, so they'd have a second pool to spill over to. And they used two very big pools, and we're about to read about this pool in a moment. In Jerusalem, Jesus did many miracles, but only two of them were actually described. And I always thought it was strange that after all the miracles, these two were described, and they had so many things in common. First of all, they were both done on a Sabbath. Now, I know that I'm from a Jewish family, so I know that many of my non-Jewish friends don't grasp what it means to us, what Shabbat means. Shabbat is more than a day of rest. It is a celebration. Friday afternoon, about three, everything shuts down. And preparation for Shabbat's been made. Big meals are made. And the family comes together. It's a wonderful family time. Mom lights the first of the candles, and we start saying our prayers and dedication. And each child has a dedication. We do the communion at the same time, too, every Friday, every Shabbat. And when the sun goes down, Shabbat has begun. And with the 24 hours, we don't do any work. It is such a spiritual thing to so many people that we even have Shabbat elevators that if you get in the elevator, you don't press a button. You go up with it until it stops at the floor and you get off, not because it's work to press a button, but it's a psychological thing. We close our coffee machines with a cloth over it so because nothing works at Shabbat. At the moment in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, there is a community of several blocks of what we call Orthodox Jews, and I hope I'm not boring you, Orthodox Jews that wear black clothes. They have little curls on the side of their face, and, and they have black hats. Their women wear black too. They wear wigs and black. Little kids wear black, the same thing. They marry the kids off as fast as they legally can and have them have as many children as possible because they want to push the Orthodox Thing. That's what Jesus had to deal with the Pharisees. They were pushing Orthodox Israel. They are so dedicated to the law, these Orthodox Jews, that should you drive through their area now, today, on a Shabbat, on a Saturday, they will stone your car. That's how serious they take the law. And that's what Jesus had to put up with when he was on Israel. And both these miracles took place on Shabbat. This one I'm going to start with is I'm doing one one miracle in John chapter 5 and verse 1. If you look at Jerusalem, the northern, if you go up from the south side, you climb up through the city of David and go up higher into the temple area. And just north of the temple is a gate. There are seven gates in Jerusalem. There are eight at the moment. One is a brand new gate called the New Gate, put in by the Catholics to help the monastery or the, where the nuns come from. They, get through, they want to get access a little easier than to go so walk so far. But on the eastern side, in the northeastern side, we have a gate called, at the moment it's called Lion Gate, but it was always called the Sheep Gate. 
It's written in the Word about the sheep gate because the Bedouins, who are the main farmers that go from place to place to place, until very recently, all the years sold their sheep at that gate. And you'd come from wherever you want to go to come to sacrifice north of the temple. You'd buy a sheep and walk straight through. At this, within minutes, you are at this pool of Bethesda. And there you would sanctify yourself, take your sheep, and go, go through all the rituals to get your sacrifice done and made at the time of festivities. We have seven main festivals. Now, this is what you read in John chapter 5. And verse 1 says, Some time later, Jesus went up to the Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, is a pool. I just told you all about that, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So a group of pillars with a roof called a colonnade, five of these structures are around this pool. And I hear a great number, a lot of people, of disabled people used to, be, used to lie. They were laying around, so visualize this pool with all these sick people. People who were blind, lame, and paralyzed. One who had been there, an invalid, for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. And so he asked him, do you want to get well? This was very alarming to me in my study time to understand that Jesus in his journey, in his ministry, never asked people if they want to be healed. It was just not normal for him because he was healing people all the time. They, they would pursue him. They'd follow him. They would plead, beg him to heal. Son of David, have mercy on me. They'd break open roofs to lower a lame person in the crowd trying to get near him. They would touch his garment. They were desperate to get healed. He didn't go into a place with a bunch of sick people and say, who can I heal, who can I heal? Never did that. He came to establish the kingdom. So he goes to this pool, and all these many sick people are there, and he finds this one lame man, just one, and he says, did you want to get healed? What a strange thing to ask him. Duh, I'm here laying because I like it. And so he says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. When the water is stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. If only he had just said, get up, and leave here. Why must he take his mat? That smelly old thing has had its days, leave it. But he had to cause trouble. He says, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured and picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was Shabbat. Had to do it on the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The Lord forbids you to carry your mat. It's causing all the trouble. Now, why would Jesus do this? Why? Why would he only walk into the pool of Bethesda with all these sick people and heal only one person, doesn't even preach the good news to him, and leaves? It's like he had a specific plan in mind to heal a lame man. And that on the Sabbath. Now, the other miracle that's named Jerusalem, that only these two are named, is a blind man. He's, from, he's blind from birth. Now, how do you know someone's blind from birth? 
It's not like you can tell big sign, blind from birth, blind from birth. I, and I, I've seen people, more than one in my life, when I look at them, they're not just staring to space, they have no eyes. It's like their eyes are very receded and their eyes are closed. Just two little skins closed, you can, there's nothing there, it's almost like it's deep in the socket. And that, you know they're born like that. So I'm thinking, Jesus walks by this blind man from birth, sees this man's got no eyes, so he says, now let me think. I was there at creation. What did, God, what did the Father do? Oh yes, dust, I need dust, dust, dust. So he picks up some dust. What am I gonna do? No, it's just too, gotta get a little, little, make an eyeball, we're missing, didn't finish the job here. And then he puts in little eyeballs. And he says, go and wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. So we're in the south of the Pool of Siloam, and he was in the Pool of Bethesda, right in the north. So two different pools, and both on a Sabbath. And that whole thing with the blind man was such a palaver because they argued with him. You not the same man, and this kid called his parents, and you were not blind from birth. They were trying, why did he heal you on Sabbath? I don't care, I just know I'm healed. And the whole ritual went on and on. And I began to puzzle why these two miracles are so similar in so many ways, almost in embracing the whole of Jerusalem. And then I found in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 9, when King David approached the city for the first time, he'd already done, dealt with all the Philistines. This was the last of the Philistines to overcome. They were called Jebusites. And they had the city right there in Jerusalem, and they had a fortress. And they shouted down from the walls, you will not take this city. Even a blind man and a lame man will keep you out. So when the son of David came to the city, no blind man and no lame man will keep him out. Because he did all things to be fulfilled. Because he didn't just walk in the pool of Bethesda and not heal one sick person all those sick people and heal one lame man and not even give the gospel to him without a reason. It was a very much to fulfill all things. He did nothing, he said, without fulfilling the plans of God. He paid careful attention. He said, this must be done that all things can be fulfilled. And why am I telling you this is, you are that important to God that every hair on your head has a number. Your life is so important to God that He's watching over you night and day that all things are fulfilled according to his purpose and plan for your life. He makes things work together for good according to a purpose and a plan for those that love God. So he's got a purpose, he's got a plan for your life. You just don't see it or maybe even like it. But he's got things he's doing. You may have said on occasion, it feels like we've come a full circle. It feels to me that we've been here before because that's what's happened. God is completing and closing things throughout your life and using all those things as a growth tool and a pre pre preparation tool. You are preparing for reigning with him eternally. Everything that happens on earth is going to reflect in eternity. So God's working you with a focus on eternity. He's not as much focused on your comforts here. He's more concerned about eternal matters. So Jesus didn't explain to his disciples, guys, I'm going to go to the pool of Bethesda and heal someone now. Forgot. This is my reason. He just fulfilled all things continually. He did so many things that were spiritual. The fig tree has a great significance. 
he, the last few weeks of him coming to Jerusalem, and I know a lot of you just can't always, because we, from our, we have seven feasts in Israel. We have seven feasts, three of which are attached to Easter. The first of the three, as we begin, is called Passover, Pascha. And what happens is we celebrate the Passover as the, as the angel passed in Egypt and didn't kill the babies that were marked in the blood and the doorposts. We, sac- we take the blood of the lambs, what we were told to do. So we sacrifice, we actually have lamb on Friday night, Shabbat, and it's the beginning of it's the beginning of Easter or the beginning of Passover. So we do the Passover, and we also begin the second feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then, of course, three days later, we have the first, the first fruits feast. So in those seven days, we have all these feasts. And if you read carefully again in the time of Christ is crucified, you'll read those, you, they'll refer to those feasts. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so they put him in prison. They'll say that, they'll use that phraseology to understand what it's all about. Are you still staying with me? Don't, 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 don't lose me now. Come to Israel and I'll teach you all of this. I'll make this come alive to you. This whole th- the thing, you'll understand the whole potential. So in the last few days of before he's crucified, he has to come down, fulfill all things. So on the Mount of Olives, he sends his disciples to go and pick up a little donkey. Now, when I say little, I mean he was little. You could just barely just get on it. That's a, <laughs> it was that small, colt. And he tells them, if you read your word, you'll see, he tells them to lay down their cloaks. So he sets the whole stage for this entrance. He's not even entering, he's coming down the Mount of Olives, down on the eastern side, coming down the, there's a road that goes to Jerusalem, and it's festival time. So a lot of Jews are going towards the festival. And they see this going on, walking by this man, and his disciples are laying down the coats and singing Hosanna. Hey, stop that! You know, buddy, you shouldn't be doing it. Tell your people you're following to stop doing that. He said, if they don't praise me, the stones are crowd to praise. But he set it up. And he gets close to the city, and then he gets, goes up the other side of the valley, Kidron Valley, the other side where you find the Gethsemane is, up the side. And that's where he comes and finds a fig tree on the way in. And he goes, and they go, ah, it's full of leaf. And it says in the Word, it's not time for the fruit. It says in the Bible, it's not fruit time, it's March, because that's when, the, when we have Passover, it's March, April. And October is when you get these big figs. But it starts budding leaves and early shoots and has a little, little fruit, the first fruit, which you can eat, it's not as, as flavorful as the big fig, but it's, it's there. Jesus comes there and he looks for the fruit and no one expects to really eat that time of the year and he couldn't find those little first fruits, so he curses the tree, very severe. And Peter's all like, whoa, Jesus, yesterday walked by, look at the trees, dead. And he makes the whole faith teachings, but really, it was a fulfillment of God's purpose. It was spiritual language, because this fig tree was Israel. And the first fruits was the, the calling to be a voice to the world. You must understand that Jerusalem and the, and the temple is the house of prayer for all people. Not just for the Israelites, for all people. We are taught from a young age to be extremely hospitable and show kindness to everybody, as is Jerusalem, a city for all people. That's what it says in the Word. I'm not making that up, it's in the Bible. And so they did not welcome the Gentiles or bring the good news or the message of God to them. And so he curses the tree, and he said in Matthew 24, a more terrible time has never been or will be again. 
because in 70 AD, after Christ left the earth, 20 years later, the invasion of the Romans came and destroyed Jerusalem in the most terrible, and Jesus said it's better, the prayer is not in a time of winter or on a Sabbath that you flee to the hills because it's a terrible time. And so began an awful time. The fig tree had died. For 2,000 years, the nation had been scattered, bruised, persecuted, killed. And that gospel that was the, made a window for the gospel to go to all nations. So now the gospel's been preached everywhere. And he said, I'll come back. They asked him when, the, when this, this good news has gone to every part of the earth. And I want to tell you, that there's no way in this world today that people don't have access to a phone with internet, with gospel in every language, Bibles in every language, with movies and audio of every conceivable presentation of the good news. There's no excuse the whole world has been reached. And the season has come in 1948, the nation became a nation again, and we're living in very interesting season of times. And you are chosen by God. You were not here because you thought it's a good thing and you may want to be a Christian, but actually Jesus said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. So God picked you and you're sitting here today because God has a plan for your life. You may feel like you're less than and may have all kinds of stuff going on and wish you could change it and win a prophetic word or somehow God to intervene to change your circumstances. And he can, but he changes circumstance today, you'll have another one to deal with tomorrow. Because he said in this world, you'll have many troubles, not some, many. This world is riddled with troubles and you don't live from trouble to trouble, you actually live for him. You are training in your faith walk. Jesus said to his disciples, after a long day of teaching, he said, let us go to the other side of the lake. So he gets in the boat with them, and they go through a terrible, terrible storm. A squall, it's called. And they start panicking, because he'd fallen asleep. And he says, don't you care that we're drowning? You always think when you go through a crisis, God has forsaken you. That's what the devil wants you to think. Now, did Jesus know there'd be a storm? Yeah. Did he know he should take a nap? Yeah. Well, he didn't say anything. Right. Because I took God to task about the COVID. I knew something was coming, but I didn't know what it was. And I asked him, why didn't you just tell me? He said, if I tell you, you act crazy. I said, what do you mean if I act crazy? I don't understand why you say that to me. He said, if I told them, that they must get in the boat, we go on the other side, but there's a storm coming. All their faith will be focused in, in surviving the storm. They'd get the boat ready, they'd lighten, they'd tie the boat together, they'd find a way to be ready for a storm. Their faith would not be on the other side. So God cannot tell us many things because our faith is focused not on what God said, but on things that we think are going to destroy us. The devil loves to create fear and panic. Where panic is, is faith absent. And faith is the energy, the language, and the power of the Spirit. God responds to faith and not how good you are. Not your righteousness appeals to him, but your faith. 
In fact, an unrighteous woman, Canaanite, told Jesus, even dogs get the crumbs, and because of her faith, she received a miracle out of season, out of time, not even entitled to it because she had faith. So the devil is out to steal, destroy your faith. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 22 to Peter, the devil's asked to sift you, Peter, but I prayed for you. I prayed your faith would not fail. So when the devil is coming against you and you're going through any kind of storm, that's the purpose, is not to take your marriage or your money or your job or your health. What he's really after is your faith. What must I do to you to make you think God's forsaken, forgotten about you? What must I do to you to make you feel there is no God? There's got to be a point in your life that I can pressurize you that you'll think there's a lot of nonsense that's serving God thing. And he's always attacking, always throwing it at you all he can. But you are very important. And Jesus did miracles in Jerusalem because they were spiritually significant. And God has things in your life because he's fulfilling so many things that are greater than your natural understanding is. You are that important to God. Are you hearing me? So instead of whining, complaining about things that don't work out the way you are, why don't you start trusting him? If you knew, if you knew what God knew, you wouldn't need to trust him. It's because you don't know. And he can't explain it to you. I told my children a little, why, Dad? Because I say so. <laughs> when they got older, I explained a little more because they had more understanding. But it's, there's no point explaining to a child. They don't get it. And God had to dumb the Bible down all he can for us. I mean, think about it. The book of Genesis says, in the garden there were two trees. <laughs> what am I, kindergarten? God had to dumb it down because we just don't get it. Even with all that, we still don't get it. Are you hearing me? And that's why you're here today, because you're that valuable to God. There's something in you sitting here today that drew you here. There's something in you here that makes you want God. Many out there have no interest, not could care less. But there's something burns inside of you. And you have so many wars and difficulties and challenges day by day, and all of it's used by God to grow you. That storm, Jesus sent them into the storm, and he calms the storm and he says, do you still have no faith? After all that, I've taught you all day, I expected the storm to be a breeze for you because that's where your faith must shine. You don't need faith if you have no storm. In fact, storms are your friends. You absolutely need them to get your faith working. So when you have a difficulty, it is a potential time to display what you've learned from God. Are you hearing me? None of you are here by accidents, I keep telling you, very carefully handpicked by the Lord. God's assembling a family of great value in this church. And I like your new building, but there are three things that God is now targeting and three visions that God has. The one is that he's redirecting the focus of the church, a part of it, into the school or education system to bring the gospel to the colleges, university, and schools, to bring the gospel there, to infiltrate with truth and light. <laughs> You're too excited in this room, I can't stand it. The second thing is, he's reaching out to the other churches. He's going to use this church 
to bring a measure of unity amongst the brethren in this church. The third thing he's gonna do is to reach the brokenness of the community and meet their needs, whether it be rehabilitation from drugs or broken homes that just don't have any money to fix the roof. Whatever it is that God has, this house is gonna do those three things and it'll be an outward expression changing the community and from this and from this there will be multiple campuses throughout the area not just a church in every town but in this town there'll be campuses one that'll be at the college one will be different areas there'll be colleges of ministry that god has chosen and um, god will lead us and lead the house when I first met Pastor Brandon, I was very excited because I'm not driven by a plan or a vision for my own ministry. I have no personal agenda whatsoever. When I was only 13, I got born again and I met the Lord. It was such an a, a amazing experience. I did it five Sundays, one after another. <laughs> Until they told me, they told me, you don't have to keep doing this. And I, Ever since then, I've enjoyed the Lord. I wasn't saved from sin. I was too stupid and too young to know what sin was. I got born again and filled the Holy Ghost, and then I sinned. And God still forgave me. So while I'm telling you that I've learned to love and know Him, and I've walked with Him all my life. And the older I become, the more aware of how wonderful, like every day that just the revelation of how much love and how great He is, overwhelms and baffles me so I have no agenda but when I met him because of my love for God I was so excited because I've seen many ministries and God is very tolerant of people that are running good churches because they like it and because it's a good business and because it makes them look good and it's just a whole fad it's true the Bible says in Colossians that many preach the gospel for selfish money gain the scripture says that but whether it's preached for money gain or not it's being preached so I've put up with it and I've tolerated my whole life people I think that lost their first love but I was very excited when I met your pastor met the I know Cody's a pastor here but Pastor Brandon I first met him some years ago and he reminded me and ever since I've known him I've watched uh, the pureness there's very few people I've met in my life in all the years I've been in the ministry that has such a powerful strong leadership skill such a, such a pureness of heart, him and his wife, and have such potential to become a voice in the nation. And that from, so I began to ask, Lord, why Midland? It's like he's tucked away. So God said to me, why Nazareth? That was my answer. So I realized God has something in planned, and you get to be part of this big plan. And God will bless you along the road, wherever you are, if you'll be faithful and committed to the house. Because we're a family. This church is a family. And God's got a very sovereign plan for each one of you. Each one of you, wherever you've been, I could name you, go down the road, name you, each difficulty you have in your life as you're going along, all the wars you're in, because there's, and that one stops, the next one will start. And help push and grow you into the plans of God, because we need workers. It's the one single thing he asks us to pray for, to ask God send the workers. Pray the harvesters. He had compassion on them. They had no way, no sheep. Shepherd, sheep had no shepherd. We need people to work in God's kingdom. Many of you are needy when you should be leading. Yeah. 
in this church. Many of you are. And we need workers, and many of you have wonderful potential. God doesn't want you to be perfect because you're not going to be. God uses clay vessels. And of course, once again, my Gentile friends don't understand what that even means. Remember when Jesus turned the water into wine? Remember that? He sent for those containers. They were made of marble. They were made of stone. They were not clay. They weren't baked. The more expensive you put in there, the better quality container you use. Remember that alabaster little jar of perfume that she broke for the, over Jesus' feet? Well, alabaster is expensive because you've got very expensive perfume in there. You don't want it to leak out or get cracked. But a clay pot is the cheapest, easiest to replace. It's cracked. It's such trash. And God put treasure, treasure in you and me. We are clay. We're not even stone or marble or bastard, we're just clay. And so God will do that for us because he wants to use you. The devil says, you better not get up. You know what you were watching last night. You know what you did yesterday. He's going to keep on barking at you because he is the accuser. And there is no condemnation to those in Christ. If you have life inside of you, share it. No matter how much messed upness you have in your life, share what God's put inside of you. Thanks for listening. We hope you felt encouraged by today's message. If you need prayer or would like to connect with us, find us on social media or by going to renewlifechurch.com.